Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. I am currently sitting at the McKean Institute in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by Ambassador Kurt Volker. He has 30 years of experience across the government, private sector, got his start at the CIA, and then went to the State Department, and is the former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Today, he leads the McCain Institute. So, Ambassador, thank you so much for joining Sanity. Pleasure to be here, and we need nothing like we need Sanity. (laughs) Well, I'm in complete agreement with you there. To start the interview, could you share a little bit just about the creation of the McCain Institute and what your core objectives are? Yes. So, after the 2008 presidential election, uh, Senator McCain, Mrs. McCain, they had uh, some leftover resources that they either had to divide among all their donors, which would be pennies a person, or try to consolidate that and put it to some good use. And so they went to Arizona State University and said, we're interested in having an institute that focuses on values and character-driven leadership. Can you be the institutional home for that? And can you join us in this enterprise? And ASU was delighted to do so. They're a very entrepreneurial university as it is. And that was the idea. We then had a series of planning conferences to talk about, well, what should a McCain Institute be? We gathered a bunch of former staffers, friends of Senator McCain, senior officials, friends of the university, people from other organizations who've been associated with think tanks and things. We came up with a few parameters or goals. One of them is that character and values-driven leadership should be at the heart of it. We want to promote good character and good values and good leadership into the future for our next generation. Another is that we didn't want to be a think tank. There are a lot of good think tanks in town. People are writing papers, holding policy discussions, uh, lobbying for action. And we figured there's no need for that for us to do that, for one. Secondly, we wanted to be more in the spirit of John McCain himself, which is rather than talking about something, do it. (laughs) And so we decided to create a few baskets of activity, humanitarian work, human rights and democracy, international security, rule of law and governance, and figure out what projects we could create and implement ourselves that we feel could make a difference. And so we've done that in each of those baskets gradually over time. That's been the heart of it. The Institute has developed remarkably well, remarkably quickly. It's been seven years. We started with nothing, and we have now grown to be a staff of about 40 people. We have a wide, wide array of donors. We have very successful programs. We have a, a lot of interaction with Arizona State University, providing opportunities for students. We're launching new programs ahead in the coming year as well. So it's been really remarkable growth. One of the things that I'd highlight today is uh, our work to try to address civic engagement, getting young people involved in our political process, in our civil process as a society, trying to solve problems and trying to stand up for fundamental rights and freedoms that we have as human beings that are respected in our Constitution and that all human beings should enjoy around the world. And that's that's a big a new area of emphasis for the Institute. And in that spirit, in late October, you launched Maverick's Needed campaign. Mm-hmm. And it was in part a get-out-the-vote effort. Part of the description of it is they stand up to bullies describing Mavericks. They champion ideas even when they are unpopular. They have the courage to challenge the status quo, and we need that more than ever. Right. You launched a very well-received launch video and did a lot of media around the launch. I'd like to quickly play that video. 
a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance cannot be paralyzed by fear. We cannot give up on ourselves and on each other. We stand for truth against falsehood, freedom against tyranny, right against injustice, hope against despair. I believe we must always stand up for for if we do not, who will? Powerful. Yes, it is. It is. Um, that was put out shortly after Senator McCain passed away, six weeks or so after that. And that was one of the things that we wanted to do was get his voice out there again. It was using speeches that he had delivered in the past, but that delivered very powerful message, as you saw. And the focus of that, of Maverick's data, was that, look, John McCain was a maverick. He was willing to stand up and fight for what he believed to be the right causes, always trying to serve a cause greater than himself. And with his passing, we need more mavericks. We need more people to do that. So that was the, the idea. And what we were calling people to do was become engaged, be, be active members of society, be, be civic-minded. One way to do that is to vote. And so it was a, an opportunity to take advantage of the fact that an election was coming up to give people something concrete that they could do. The message is really about standing for those causes that are important, that we believe in, that reflect our values as, as human beings, and serving a cause greater than oneself. It's a powerful message and one that I think we need more and more and more of uh, as, as the world becomes more and more lacking, or at least yeah. partially lacking in that spirit. In that spirit, the president has repeatedly and repeatedly spoken out against Senator McCain's legacy, even recently mm -hmm. as the past few weeks. He called him not my kind of guy. I think the McCain Institute is one that has honored the incredible bipartisan legacy of John McCain and is working to graciously stand up to or combat some of this rhetoric mm -hmm. against John McCain even after his death. In part of your response to this latest wave of tweets, you released a fact sheet that mm -hmm. set the record straight on the senator's legacy. What has been your thought process handling these kind of post-2016 uh, curveballs? Right. Um, first off, we're not interested in getting into a tit-for-tat you know, argumentation with President Trump or anybody else, for that matter. That doesn't take you anywhere. That's just political noise. When things were said about John McCain that were not true, however, we thought it was important that there be something that says in a succinct, clear way, this is what he actually did. And we tried to, to put out a fact sheet, as you said, just with that in mind, um, just so that anyone who wanted to look and say, wait a second, I heard this about John McCain, is that true? Here's the information. For instance, saying that he was not a, a great leader for veterans issues, he was. Saying that he didn't fight, you know, when the veterans health care system was having some major, major problems, he was in the forefront on that. So just getting these kind of basic facts out. Ultimately, I am really, really optimistic about the country, about our politics, about where we are, because we're a people that is really well-grounded on fundamental values and principles. And we believe in character. We want good leadership. We're kind people. We're tolerant and generous people. Yes, the way our politics plays out every day, and we see it in the media, and we see it through individuals in politics, 
doesn't show that. But I don't believe that is what we are as a country. So I think we're very well grounded, and I think as long as we stick to the fundamentals, which are things that John McCain stood for, that's the right ground for us to be confident on. We've had guests on this show from across ideologies, and in a fair amount of the conversations, John McCain and his legacy Mm -hmm. comes up because it's so powerful. In his death, it was a rare, unfortunately rare moment where people from across the aisle celebrated the legacy of someone who really had the best interest of the country and the people in it at heart. You had the opportunity to serve as a McCain fellow in Mm -hmm. 1997, 1998. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? So I was a career Foreign Service officer. I had spent about almost 10 years in the Foreign Service at that point, a little bit less. And I had served at the U.S. Embassy in Budapest uh, when we were preparing for Hungary to join NATO. And we were also Mm -hmm. deploying the U.S. Army Europe from Germany through Hungary to get to Bosnia. And after that, Three and a half years in Hungary, I had the chance to go spend a year on Capitol Hill as a State Department detailee in Senator McCain's office. And this was a tremendous experience. Senator McCain was already, in 97, a leading voice on foreign policy. He was not, however, on the Foreign Relations Committee. He was on Armed Services which meant that he had good use for someone who would do foreign policy issues in his Senate office. He was also a part of the majority. It was also the year in which we were evaluating and, and the Senate would vote on enlarging NATO for the first time since the end of the Cold War. This was bringing in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And so Senator McCain very much believed in that, wanted to lead in that cause, and so I played point on that issue in his office. It was a great experience because you learned a lot from just the way that he conducted himself. He always had points of principle and values at the forefront of what he was thinking about. He was judicious about when to join a fight and when not to join a fight. He loved to join a fight, but he was always judicious about why and when. I remember one issue in particular was about funding for the IMF, and there was a Republican proposal to cut U.S. funding for the IMF. Clinton administration wanted to proceed. They thought it was very important that we sustain the IMF. It helps create leverage for good governance around the world. At the time, Senator Chuck Hagel was leading a a group of moderate Republican senators seeking to advocate for retaining the IMF support. And I thought this is a natural for John McCain. Of course, he's going to support this too. And so I I talked to uh, Hagel's staff about it, and I talked with Senator McCain. And he just said, keep the powder dry. It didn't mean he didn't agree. (laughs) What it meant is this is not the time to be doing this. We'll get to this. (laughs) We will save the IMF, but let's not go too soon. And I thought that was really an educational moment for me to think about, don't just jump at things. Think through how they're going to play out and when, where your efforts are going to be most needed and when, and it wasn't the time. And and he was right, because in the end, that effort fizzled, and uh, he didn't need to pick a fight with the Republican leadership to make that happen. And it also gave him the opportunity to pursue other things. And one of the things that he cared about at that time also was the war in Bosnia and dangers looming in Kosovo. And he wanted to make sure we were not putting caps on our troop presence there. And he would rather fight that battle. It was a really good educational experience to, to work with someone who really stood for the right things and also kind of knew how to, knew how to engage on them. Mm that's applicable to all aspects of of life. The things that you can learn from someone, John McCain is an example who I had the privilege to work for, but from lots of people who have experience, and you really do get something out of that. 
Probably the, the most important thing I, I think I learned from Senator McCain, but from other leaders as well, is just how unassuming and charitable and nice and, and gracious uh, they can be. You think of powerful people as not having time for things. You think of them as being only wanting to deal with what's important and not interested in other people or things. And what you realize is that the best people who have advanced the most in their lives always have time for other people. They're always willing to talk, always willing to engage, always willing to help someone. It's just the nature of the person that they are. That's what makes them great leaders. Decency and decent people, they do exist. Yep. And we often say at, at Sanity, you know, decency is still out there and sanity is too. Uh, we do the looking so you can find it. Looking at some other events that the McCain Institute has organized to speak to some of the mm -hmm. problems or frustrations we're, yeah. we're facing right now, you just actually just last week hosted one of your debate and decision series, which was our college campuses mm -hmm. eroding free speech. Mm -hmm. And it was hosted at the U.S. Navy Memorial Auditorium, um, and you moderated the event. If you could share a little bit about takeaways, because one thing I admire about the McCain Institute is when you organize events, you actually try to pair people with maybe opposing viewpoints or different perspectives mm -hmm. to have a healthy, free-spirited debate. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of those these days. The lesson learned from that debate is always have a technician on hand because the Navy Memorial's uh, power went out about two hours before our debate. And so we actually ended up having to postpone it to a future date where we'll work out on. So we weren't actually able to do it. The spirit of the McCain Institute debates has been one of bringing opposing views together in a civil and organized fashion so people can debate the merits of an issue. Uh, we've always had two people on either side of an issue. We've tried to make sure that that involves some gender balance, some, some partisan balance, so that it's not a left-right debate, but people from the left on, on both sides of the issue, people from the right on both sides of the issue, so that we don't make it a finger-pointing partisan exercise. We've done mostly foreign policy issues. Probably some of our best debates were about intervention in Syria and about uh, how to deal with Russia. But we wanted to pick up one that has resonance in domestic politics now as well, partly because it goes hand in hand with our own campaign about fundamental rights that we have as, as Americans and, and as all people should have, and partly because it's been very contentious um, in the media from both left and right, and, and the president even put out an executive order about free speech on college campus. So we thought this was timely, and we will be coming back to that. You've spent the majority of your career working on foreign affairs issues mm -hmm. and have depth of knowledge handling international crisis. We're now at a time, at least in my lifetime, that is the most tense mm. domestically. From your career and your perspective, what is your concern or worry level? And looking at other countries that have faced more significant human rights challenges, what is your pulse on, mm. <laughs> on where we are as a country? Two things are worth thinking about that aren't commonly talked about in the media. One of them is there's a lot of continuity between President Trump and President Obama in terms of their policies. Remember, it was President Obama who kicked off his administration with a reset with Russia. This was six months after Russia invaded Georgia and had a ceasefire agreement that it wasn't implementing. And uh, we did the reset instead, kind of looked past that. Pulled out uh, missile defense systems from Central and Eastern Europe. Talked about uh, allies being freeloaders. 
pulled uh, U.S. forces back from Europe, so reductions in forces there, wanted to get the U.S. out of Afghanistan and Iraq, and did in Iraq disastrously. Uh, Afghanistan we managed to stay in, but we always had this deadline looming over our shoulders or, you know, when the U.S. is going to leave, which I think was a great encouragement to the Taliban. Being kind of skeptical about trade as well because of the impact on uh, jobs and on labor conditions and on environmental standards. So there's actually a lot of continuity there because President Trump has taken similar positions on all those issues and, in fact, amplified them. And he's trying to engage Putin. He's been wanting to get out of Syria. He's been, you know, very outspoken, imposing trade and so on. So there's a lot of continuity, which is not to say, it's not meant to criticize Obama or Trump. It's meant to say that they are tapping into something in the American like perceptions, public attitudes, that people do feel, and President Trump uses this, that we always are spending our own money, providing leadership, sending our troops to try to solve problems around the world, and why aren't we solving problems here at home? Uh, and that's a very powerful sentiment. You can trace it back through our history. You know, George Washington talked about entangling alliances. We had a hard time mobilizing ourselves to get involved in World War I, and as soon as we finished, we got right back out again. And similar, you know, it took Pearl Harbor to get us involved in World War II. We were trying to stay out of that one. And, and again, it was a big debate, very closely fought, just to get the U.S. to ratify the NATO treaty, because even though the administration wanted to do it, Senate at the time was skeptical about these continuing engagements. So that, that is a strain of American thinking. So that Trump may have a, a unique way of expressing it, but he's tapping into something that's there. The flip side of that, and this is also largely unseen today, we have a stronger bipartisan consensus on foreign and national security policy now than we have had at least since 9-11. We have most Democrats in the House and in the Senate have become national security hawks. You know, they were supporting President Obama in some of these retrenchment policies. But now they're attacking President Trump for going further on those same policies. So you have Democrats that are pushing for more support for NATO, more pushback on Russia, standing up for China, proactive support for trade, support for Ukraine and Georgia. A real turnabout and a very constructive one, I would say. And that puts them in alignment with the vast majority of Republicans in the House and Senate. So when it comes time, for instance, to say, okay, we need to have some more sanctions on Russia because of their invasion of Ukraine, you get 98 votes in the Senate for this. Or if it says, okay, the U.S. should not pull out of NATO, let's have a vote in the House, 400 votes in the House. And Mitch McConnell could easily pull out 98 votes for that as well if he wanted to, although there's no need. So I think that this bipartisan strength of conviction about U.S. leadership and U.S. role in the world is enhanced, if you will, today as compared to a few years ago. Uh, and I think it, it, it's always this balance between that salacious tendency that exists and that demand for U.S. leadership that exists. We're going to continue to see that tension, but I think we're on solid ground with the Senate. One more thought on that. There is a great crop of young senators, I say young in meaning young in terms of office, in either terms of office, as compared with 15, 20 years ago, on both sides of the aisle. You have, and I'll just throw out a bunch of names, and I apologize for anyone's name I leave out, but you have Dan Sullivan uh, from Alaska, you have Chris Murphy, you have uh, Chris Coons, you have Gene Shaheen, you have uh, Senator Barrasso, uh, you have Joni Ernst, uh, you have Ben Sass. You, you have 
uh, Tim Kaine, uh, and you can just go on. There's a great group of senators there who care who care about foreign policy and national security, are deeply engaged on it. Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, so, uh, care about this passionately and work together. Um, so this is something that, again, we haven't seen really since 9-11 and before that maybe the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo. It's refreshing in a way to see that we have that kind of bipartisanship again. When you think about continuity and bipartisanship, the news media does not tell that story. No, they don't. They don't. It's- this is not, it's not the narrative that, no. you know, this is, your perspective is it one I don't hear sell. very often. It, it does not sell. sell. It doesn't get people to watch your station. It doesn't play to the competing base in politics, whether it's the left or the right. And if you're a politician, you kind of need to get attention. And so none of what I just said makes it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, not, it's not what people are talking about. But when you sit down with people... in in a real way and talk. That's what you find. I was at the Munich Security Conference this year in February, something John McCain led the U.S. delegation to for 30 years or something like that, uh, 20-some years, I guess. And we had a bipartisan group of senators. They met with foreign leaders together. They spoke really as a class uh, representing the United States. The media focused on Vice President Pence's speech and Chancellor Merkel's speech in which there appeared to be some barbs thrown at each other. But that's not actually what happened. And that, that's <laughs> from following that, the right. only thing I remember about right. it is right. are those speeches you that's just right. referenced. The speeches did take place, but the message was this was the largest U.S. delegation to a Munich security conference ever, 57 members of the Senate and House. They were there on a bipartisan basis. They engaged with everybody all over the place, and there's a lot of common ground between what the United States was representing there and what our European allies are representing there. So I think the media loves to portray the fight, but the reality is actually much more upbeat. The natural flavor for news consumption in the United States, A, has is generally domestic news. And B, you know, there there is absolutely a formula now that, you know, extreme tension, extreme tension yields more eyeballs, more clicks, mm-hmm. et cetera. Why do you think it is that we as a nation have less of an appetite for foreign policy and international news? Partly because we focus on what we do in our daily lives, and most people don't deal with foreign affairs in their daily lives. They might go on vacation somewhere, but that's about the extent they're thinking about it. The exception to that might be people in business who are doing some trade issues. So that's one reason. It's not just something that people are confronted with every day. Another is we don't teach world affairs geography, politics, history, global politics, I mean, in the same way that we teach other things in schools. So people just aren't as aware, they don't have the context in in which to place it. And I think we're a big country and we have people that do these things, national security, foreign policy, we have the military, we have the State Department, we have government in Washington. So people just take it for granted that somebody's managing that and it's not something they need to, to think about. And it also makes them not really aware because there's kind of a buffer between the world and them, as is how much the world is affecting uh, their daily lives. I wish it was otherwise. When I travel and I visit other countries, I see that the people in those countries are far more aware of global events than we are in this country. But I I think it's, again, it's it's, uh, the nature of being a big country that's doing pretty well that people don't think too much about it. 
Well, when there are about 330 million people, right. that that in and of itself That's is a lot, lot of news <laughs> news to lot. cover. But the general news media paints a picture that is bleaker than I think we, re- we really are. It does. It does. And then there's a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Um, switching gears, before we start to close, I'd love to ask a few more questions about the Institute. You work very closely with Cindy McCain, yeah. um, and she's taken on a, a, a leadership role at the Institute. What has that experience been like? Well, first of all, I can't say enough good things about Cindy McCain. She has always, you know, for decades, been a very outspoken advocate for those who need someone to be an advocate for them, whether it's on human rights, on democracy, victims of human trafficking, parts of the world like the Congo, uh, where there's just been enormous human suffering. She has always been out there. So that, that's really a tribute to her right from the start. Second, to have the experiences of two major presidential campaigns where her husband was the candidate, you're under the microscope all the time, it's a tremendously stressful and intrusive experience, and she came out of that with dignity and with strength, and you really have to admire that. And, you know, looking at you nodding, you've been through the Republican convention. This is tough on people. Oh, man. This is really tough on people, and she has really earned her stripes through that as well. And then the last year, Senator McCain's life was really trying as well, because you're this great man, this this national treasure. Um, everyone has such high expectations of what they expect from him uh, at the end of his life, and, and you're kind of on point to make sure that he's treated with dignity, with respect, he gets the health care he needs, you kind of take care of things at the end of life like that. Also, very difficult, very stressful, and she just handled that so beautifully. And then with his passing, and you, you saw her with the, the funeral uh, and the whole series of events that Senator McCain himself helped plan, uh, she carried herself with such grace. And coming out of that, she is determined to stay in the arena. It's our slogan at the McCain Institute. And the name she, of your podcast. Podcast in the arena. And so she's become the chair of the board of the McCain Institute. She continues her work to call attention to the need to fight human trafficking. We have a lot of specific programs in that area advancing character-driven leadership as we've developed as a mission for the Institute, very passionate about that. She has uh, such tremendous goodwill, both in this country and around the world, and we really feel that that is a great benefit to the work that we want to do, that she can help mobilize that goodwill. And it'll it'll be a journey going forward as well. We, we haven't had that kind of chair of the board before, and uh, I, you know, we're all learning how to best take advantage of that going forward. The McCain Institute is a relatively new organization, but mm-hmm. it's one that already has made a, a name for itself in a whole range of ways. I'd like to ask, what is your favorite part of your job? Creating things and seeing people run with them. It's like mm-hmm. empowering people who are passionate about things and can do things. I always like to think that my I'm doing my job well if I'm not doing too much <laughs> that other people are doing everything. Because um, we have people who are great. Uh, we've developed a terrific Next Generation Leaders program. It's mid-career professionals from people around the world, inspiring them in issues of ethics and values and character and communications and so forth, and then helping them even by developing action plans, helping them be more effective in their home environments later so change that they can bring about. That's an exciting program. The work that's been done in combating human trafficking to see that this has really taken off the level of awareness of human trafficking in the country now compared to when we started, it's night and day. The um, 
sophistication of programs, of uh, legal uh, frameworks in states around the country, of training for law enforcement, social services, all things that we've contributed to, that has taken off as well. And that's because of some of the great work that Cindy McCain has done and the people that we have working on that. The model that was developed, what we talked about, about being an action-oriented institution as opposed to a think tank, and then finding the right people and empowering them to go do things, that's just, just really inspiring. For our final question, uh, which you sort of have just spoken to a little bit, but we ask every guest, what are you most optimistic about right now today? Mm. I am most optimistic about the United States. I think that we're going through all kinds of things. You know, you watch the media, you see the critiques of the president, the behavior of the president, and the Congress, and the infighting politically. But ultimately, this is a great place. You know, people have really rock-solid core values, a sense of freedom, sense of fairness, sense of tolerance, sense of justice, a sense of commitment to, to doing the right thing. And we have already produced a remarkable achievement in human history by the United States the way it is today. And that's only going to get better. So I'm really optimistic about that. Well, it's not too often that you start off an answer listing the rhetoric of the president and Congress and ending on a high note, and uh, and I appreciate that. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. It's really Pleasure with you. Pleasure to be with you, and congratulations again for the podcast and launching these projects, because there is, I think one of the projects you talked about was millions in the middle. There are millions of people in the middle. Uh, and I think making sure that there are outlets that speak to them is really important. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.